Welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Should children return to school? Will this result in the spread of disease? And if a vaccine against COVID-19 is developed, will people get vaccinated? For answers to these questions and more, I turn to Dr. William Razga. Dr. Razga is Professor of Pediatrics at the Robert Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont. He is co-author of a commentary in the journal Pediatrics about COVID-19 transmission in children. Dr. William Razga, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me here. As a physician, what are you seeing right now uh, in your patients as some of the repercussions for children uh, of the COVID pandemic? Well, children are depressed, actually. I think that they've really been isolated. I think that they're pretty excited to be outdoors a little bit this summer and seeing other children, but they were indoors for a really long time, that a lot of them had Zoom. They weren't able to participate in a lot of their other activities. They missed their social connection. Um, They're desperate to get back being with other children. You know, I was struck on a recent visit to my doctor um, near Burlington. I was just asking him, what does he see in the community? He's a family doctor in the community. And um, his immediate response to me was in terms of what is going on, he said, the thing I am most concerned about is the suffering I see among adolescents. Is that something you see? Well, I'm a pediatric infectious disease physician. And so I don't see as many children coming to me directly because of that, but I do know the national and international data. And what's pretty clear, particularly amongst teens, is that this has been hard on them. And they have suffered that they lost their opportunities to have some social and emotional development. They struggle on being on their own. Um, there's only so much you can do by video conferencing. Uh, and, and that this important component of being with other people and learning from other people has really been lost. How do you, how do you undo the harm that has been done or the, the, the psychic harm, I guess I'd call it? So I, I think what we hope to do is get teens together again, to get children together again. But of course, you have to be safe. And, you know, in places like Florida, that's going to be extraordinarily challenging. In places like Texas, that's going to be really hard. We're in a somewhat luxurious position in Vermont where we have a very low prevalence rate of COVID-19. And so with the masking and appropriate distancing, children are starting to make those connections. What we really hope is that they're going to be able to continue to make those connections and continue those connections in school. So we're within a few weeks of school starting up again in Vermont, and you co-authored with your colleague, Dr. Lee, a piece in the journal Pediatrics um, looking at uh, COVID transmission in children. What did you find? So we wrote a commentary based upon a household study done in Switzerland. And that household study said, you know, we we looked at 40 children with COVID in Geneva, and we tried to figure out, did they get it from adults or did they get it from other children? And they found in that household study that overwhelmingly the children had gotten it presumably from an adult, that there was someone else, an adult age who in the family who had symptoms first and probably transmitted. So more than 90% of the time, it was due to an adult exposure. And that was really consistent 
with all other household studies that have been published, whether in China and elsewhere. And the data to date has really suggested, and there's been a lot of data published since we first um, wrote that in May, that the majority of transmission is from adults to children, the vast majority, and that children less likely transmit infection to adults, particularly the younger children. Okay, so now let's bring in this study from South Korea that came out this week, a large study, I think it was 65,000 young people, finds that children younger than 10 transmit to others much less often than adults do, though the risk is not zero. And those between the ages of 10 and 19 can spread the virus at least as well as adults do. And these findings suggest that as schools reopen, communities are going to see clusters of infection uh, taking root. Uh, that include children <clears throat> of all ages. And I'm quoting there from the New York Times article on it. So talk about how this study of adolescence relates to what you found among children. So, you know, this is a very interesting study out of South Korea. And and they looked at, um, you know, like 5,000 people or so that were COVID positive and looked at over 50,000 contacts. And a couple of things were not highlighted in the New York Times articles, and we're not quite sure which way the transmission went. They just found the first person they identified, and they're not sure where they'd been infected by somebody else. Two, there are two different segments there. There's a, they looked at household contacts, and they looked at non-household contacts. And I know that the publicity really was about in this 10 to 19-year-old group seemingly efficiently transmitting to household contacts. And nobody really emphasized that they did not efficiently transmit to non-household contacts at all. They did worse. So sort of an interesting uh, dynamic there. And, and although that this well-done study, I, one of the interesting things to me is that in that 10 to 19 age group, there were, they investigated far fewer contacts of the index cases than in any other age group. So like in the children zero to nine, they looked at like eight or nine contacts. Uh, for people 20 to 29, they looked at 12 or 14 in the older people. But for that particular age group, they only looked at like three contacts. So it's just different. I'm not saying that they did anything wrong. It's like, wow, you know, did they just not able, easily able to identify the contacts? Did they miss the asymptomatic ones? So it's, it's interesting. It makes you think, well, certainly there can be transmission. My take-home message has always been that when we think about children transmitting disease to others, it's a continuum. It's an age continuum. Notice the CDC no longer says 65 is the age at which you are now at higher risk. They just say age is a risk factor. And I think age is a risk factor for transmission of virus and that very young children, what's called zero to nine, just don't efficiently transmit the virus. But as you get older and bigger, you are more easily able. Uh, and again, there's a 10 to 19 age group, you know, a 10 year old, you know, what's that? Like a, a fifth grader is really different from a 19 year old, which could be a college freshman. They're radically different people. So I just think you just have to be a little cautious in there about over-interpreting that these people are just a tremendous risk. I just say that once you get into high school students in Vermont or Florida or else, they are going to be more likely to transmit. They're going to be more easily able to transmit disease and closer to adult patterns. So what do you think schools need to do? What is a safe school in the COVID era need to look like? So in a perfect world, David, there would be low community transmission. 
You know, it just is so important that without getting the community transmission under control, it just puts enormous pressure on schools. You know, to, to make it easier to open schools, all adults should be masking. All adults should be, you know, avoiding close physical contact, you know, the social physical distancing when they're out and about. That, that those are just some fundamental things that makes life better for everybody. No, you're saying all adults should be physical distancing and masking, but don't children need to do that too? Well, I, th- I think that, again, that when we talk about high school students, so when high school students are on the bat, I think that they should be doing physical distancing as well. I think that they should be wearing masks as well. It's just, I, you know, as a seven-year-old, you know, does a seven-year-old have to mask? I'm not as confident that they have to mask. I think that if we want to minimize transmission, then we would ask that child to put on a mask. And when we help write the health policy or the I was some some task force involved in all this, we did finally decide we're going to require masking for everybody. Because we even though that seven-year-old or nine-year-old is much less likely to transmit disease than an 18-year-old, it's a pretty easy intervention and everyone's going to be safer. Why not do that? So to my mind, I mean, I always think it's handy. It's actually really great if we can control community transmission. But if we want to have safe schools and the safest possible schools, then you're going to make sure that everyone masks. And then the children's desks need to be six feet apart. And um... So as you know, David, there's been a little controversy about that, that the Centers for Disease Control initially recommended that we should try to stay six feet apart. That's based upon projections of you know, how far particles can travel in the air. Uh, since that initial recommendation, there was a study that came out at Atlanta that suggested that maybe three feet is probably pretty good too. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has said, well, try to keep them three feet apart. And again, you'll decide, you know, what can you do and what can you not do? I think, but both groups were pretty cautious about saying these are not, this is not a hard stop. And even in the healthy children opening schools, um, um, protocol that was put together, they just say, we, we think it would be great if we could maintain six feet distance in, but that's not an absolute requirement. We try to do that as best we can. What about staff, teachers, and other support staff in the schools? Um, how do they manage their risk? These are obviously older adults. So they would manage the risk like every single other person, that they should not enter the school if ill. No child should enter the school if ill, and no adult should uh, enter the school ill if ill. Because you don't want teachers congregating other teachers, adult teachers who are ill. That everyone should mask. That you should try to maintain physical distancing. Those are all. Um, we should avoid um, adults congregating. So um, that there may be an area designated for teachers where they would be able to get together, but you have to maintain some distancing there that we want to keep the, the teachers safe as possible. And, and I think the National Academy of Sciences came out with a report just in the past week and said, even though we, when we say generally talking about facial cloth coverings, they just said maybe uh, for the teachers, they should actually wear a surgical mask. And that's a little different. And because in, when we talk about facial cloth coverings, we're saying that whoever wears that facial cloth covering is helping protect other people and doesn't provide that much benefit. There's some trying to figure out exactly how much benefit it provides to the wearer. But when you wear a procedure mask or surgical mask, 
not only are you preventing transmission to others, you are actually protecting yourself. So it may be that teachers would wear that um, to help minimize their risk. And again, it's particularly important in high school students and particularly when they're with other adults. Now, you are also a faculty member at UVM, at UVM Medical School. Um, and of course, UVM will be coming back in a session. How do you think that's going to go? This is 10,000 odd young people coming back to Burlington. So, you know, the, the team put together a, a plan to do frequent testing early on. Um, we hope that the college students, when they return, will, you know, quarantine, do their testing, wear the masking, wear their mask when they're out and about, and maintain physical distancing. I, I think, as we've seen across the country, that young people have not always been easily able to follow those guidelines, and that's why there's a lot of transmission uh, in people 20 to 35 years of age. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're speaking in this half hour with Dr. William Raska. He's a professor of pediatrics at the Robert Lorner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont and uh, is co-author of a, uh, well, not a study, but a, a commentary in the journal Pediatrics about COVID transmission in children. Um, so we're speaking here with a certain luxury, Vermont being the lowest infection rates in the nation, that's, we are not representative, as we know, if we turn on the evening news. Talk about what you think it's going to be like in some of these hotspots in, in the South, for example. Is it possible to safely open schools in places where there are big outbreaks? I think it's just going to be much more challenging. Can it be done? Yes. But you're going to have to be pretty careful about your patient, the not patient, sorry about that, but the students. So you're going to emphasize K through five, that you're going to have really good screening procedures for the, the, the teachers as well as the students. You're going to try to minimize the risk in any way that you can. That the higher the prevalence rate area that you live in and the older the student, the more challenging it's going to be, for sure. So uh, getting back to the college scenario where there's talk uh, at UVM as at other schools of testing like twice a week, um, yet we're seeing that there's a crisis in testing around the country, that results are taking a week, sometimes longer for, uh, for results to come back. Um, how is it going to be possible to actually perform this number of tests and get them back in a meaningful time frame, given what we see nationwide? So that's a critical issue for all of us, David, that a turnaround time of seven days is pretty useless for a test for COVID. And that I know the Vermont Department of Health and others and the people who try to put together that protocol have really to think about ways to develop a capacity in this. Sorry if you can hear that. Um, um, so the the issue really is is who will do those tests and 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 I think right now in Vermont the testing is going to be going to the Broad Institute which is in Boston, but even though they're really used to doing thousands upon thousands of specimens, if you have many many colleges across the country sending specimens, you can imagine it's going to be challenging. So. You are right that I'm not quite sure what will happen. I do worry that the turnaround time will be too long. And I think that the health officials in Vermont are well aware of this and are really working extremely hard to make sure they can develop 
mechanisms to get the tests done quickly, get them to Boston or whomever the light, the, uh, the person's going to do to as quickly as possible and get those results back. It is a logistical challenge because then who's going to be responsible for finding those people, notifying the results? Not easy at all. Now, you're an infectious disease specialist. Have you treated any COVID patients? So I'm in a luxurious position, a pediatric infectious disease physician, and there's not been a single child with COVID-19 hospitalized in the state of Vermont. That's how well we've done. Now, so the only person I have seen with known COVID infection is a 20-year-old person. Um, so, you know, that is that a pediatric patient? She was positive, but, you know, so, but that she was over the age of 19. We were hearing for some time about this very frightening multi-symptom syndrome that children were getting, uh, but that kind of fell out of the news. Is this still a concern? Well, the multi-system inflammatory disease of childhood associated with COVID-19 is a severe disease, and there have been several hundred cases around the world. Uh, We've never seen a case in Vermont in, in the pediatric population. And, and of course, we are always concerned about um, the complications of COVID-19. And it turns out these children generally, uh, when they present, they're just uh, really inflamed. And they can look like one of two um, pretty severe diseases where the immune system sort of going wild and in and, and sort of a disorganized way. Um, but, you know, overall, we just say that Infections in children seem to be less common than infections in adults, and this still is a very uncommon complication of COVID-19 in children. So is it a, something that we worry about? Absolutely. Is it something we're likely to see? No. Not in the Vermont with our low prevalence rates, that's for sure. Do you imagine that on a practical level, will schools, will, will what we see this fall are schools that have to open and close periodically? Um, in in my mind, it wouldn't surprise me if that, I mean, if a school has an outbreak in a class, it's going to be very difficult to manage to isolate mm-hmm. that class. What do you think is going to be the practical appearance of this in the fall? So I am not so sure that we're going to be opening and closing schools. I think it's possible that we'll be moving through different mitigation strategies. Like we're we're thinking about opening schools um, in a very strict way to make sure that we can put that in place, that make sure we can main some, maintain some distancing and a few other procedures. And then if that works, we're going to ease up a little bit. But I expect we're going to go back and forth uh, between that. I think that if we do this correctly, and I know the Vermont Department of Health and the, and the Teachers Association, the principals, they're all in on this. It was multidisciplinary group that put together this protocol. They're, they don't really want to close schools. And we're hoping that with all the, the, the procedures we put in place, if a child has COVID-19 in a classroom, we can say, well, here's the exposure risk. It's this, this group, this pod. Well, we can do contact tracing in that group, but we don't necessarily have to close the entire school. We don't have to close all the schools in the district. And again, could that happen? It could happen. But again, we're hoping that we can move between phases of mitigation strategies rather than simply opening and closing schools. So uh, one of the uh, striking um, sort of counterintuitive things that's gone on in this healthcare crisis is I know that hospitals kind of emptied out 
for uh, quite a while as routine procedures were stopped. What is going on with routine health care for kids, uh, routine vaccinations? Uh, how has this impacted that? So as you can imagine, we were on lockdown. Um, kids weren't, weren't getting the in-person care that they traditionally got. Rates fell across the nation. Vaccination rates fell in Vermont. Uh, and just because they didn't have access. Now, the pediatricians and family medicine doctors and the health care providers in Vermont are incredibly creative and dedicated to the care of the patient. So I just know pediatricians who were seeing kids in the parking lot. I know they, they were doing all sorts of interesting things to make sure that children got the care that they needed. But care is really different right now. There's a lot of telehealth. There's a lot of it because we can do a, a lot of things just by talking to the parents, talking to the child, just, you know, the way we are now. Uh, and occasionally then we'd say, well, we really need to see you. And then we arrange for our time to be able to do that. So, we are trying to catch up. Um, the other interesting thing that, that's happened is that when children were isolated, so they weren't in childcare facilities, they weren't in school, they weren't transmitting other respiratory viruses. Now, COVID, the, the virus that causes COVID-19 is transmitted a little bit differently than influenza. It's, 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 we always thought that in, you know, children spread influenza really efficiently. <laughs> But children don't efficiently transmit COVID-19 for whatever reason. But you know, once we went on lockdown, there was just no more influenza. Once we went on lockdown, there was no more respiratory syncytial virus. So children were just healthier in terms of respiratory infection. So there were fewer visits for that type of things. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around the contradiction here that as a result of COVID in Vermont, children are healthier. Well, again, we, we began this by saying there are mental health aspects of this. So I put them all together. There are a lot of children who have suffered because they weren't able to do the things that are important to the growth of children, but they certainly had fewer respiratory tract infections and fewer other acute illnesses, um, whether it's due to gastrointestinal disease, because they just didn't have the same contact with other children. Let's talk about the prospect of a vaccine for COVID-19 and whether people will take it. Um, so there was a survey done recently, I think it was the Associated Press, showing that just half of Americans would plan to get a COVID-19 vaccine if it were available before the end of the year. Um, talk a little bit about vaccine skepticism and, and what you see. So, you know, vaccine skepticism is not new. It's been around for as long as we've had vaccines. People are always worried about a couple of major issues. One is, you know, the, the right to refuse it, personal freedom. Two, about safety. And a driver will be how safe do people think this vaccine really is? That we're moving awfully quickly. Historically, when we were trying to license vaccines, it was a multi-year process, multiple studies, trying to make sure that we could see the, the immediate effects and some of the long-term effects. The timeline has been compressed dramatically. The vaccine... You know, the vaccine manufacturers have a bit of a challenge ahead of them because, again, that most vaccines are initially, you know, tested in healthy people, but they're going to actually need to prove it's effective in the people at most risk. And those are older people. Those are the people that are least likely to respond. So there are so many issues uh, with the vaccine. And interestingly enough, I don't think kids are going to be part of the vaccine agenda at all for quite some time. Hmm. Well, that's because if you're, I mean, they seem to have less severe disease. 
And if you're worried about this inflammatory condition of childhood that seems to be a post-COVID or post-COVID infection, you're going to be really cautious about going there. So you undoubtedly have experience dealing with patients who are reluctant to get vaccines. Uh, What's your magic bullet for persuading them? There is no magic bullet, to be honest with you. I just want to listen to their concerns. What are they most concerned about? What is it that makes them hesitant to get the vaccine? And then we just discuss that to see how can I address those concerns? How can we develop a strategy uh, to make it easier that for them to get vaccines? That I just want to hear them so that we have an idea of what we need to address. And that the way I look at it, because I see lots of children in my infectious disease clinic that are unvaccinated or have a different vaccination schedule, is that we have the fundamental same interest. We want to keep that child healthy. And we've just looked at it different. But nonetheless, we have that bond. We want to keep the child healthy. So that's a great starting point, to be honest with you. I never give them noogies. I just say, okay, well, let's, here's the data or whatever. Here's how I can address this. How does that sound to you? What are you we'll talk it over your friends? Come on back. We'll chat again. We'll do a televideo or something else like that. And eventually, uh, a, a decent percentage of them, you know, um, will get a vaccine. Okay. Well, Dr. William Rasko, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. William Raska is a professor of pediatrics at the Robert Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont. Uh, That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vermontconversation.com. Tune in next Wednesday at 1 for another Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.